So I wanted to start by saying that um, my day job is a scientist. I work for NASA. So um, let's see. I want tonight. I want to talk about taking refuge. And in preparing for this, I, I read a number of very um, well-written, deep, insightful texts by Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tan Jeff and listened to several talks. And that's not what you're going to hear tonight. <laughs> um, there's a lot that's been written and there, there's some wonderful books um, both in our library and uh, on the web. But what I wanted to share to you, with you tonight is really my what does taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha mean to me? Or what, what does it look like for me? Um, this is a practice that many people come to because they've had some direct experience of suffering. Suffering that seemed um, unmanageable or unapproachable using any other you know, um, technique. And there were kind of three areas that have been active for me in the last oh, few months to few years where I've um, been working with that kind of suffering and that kind of um, stress. Uh, one of them is in my career as a scientist for NASA. I've worked for the federal government for 21 years. And I really thought when I signed on that this was like a job for life. You know, that once you, once you got hired, you'd, you know, I'd work until some age when I, you know, maybe 65 or something and retire with a pension and pretty much had that part of my life taken care of. And in the last several years, the um, NASA is um, under the administrative branch of government, which means that the White House sets um, policy for it. And so there's been a move away from the kind of science that I do, studying the Earth, the planet Earth, and more emphasis on going out exploring the solar system. And so what I thought was pretty much a job for life has really started to come into question. I mean, there's some notion that maybe in the next fiscal year or two that they may be moving people to other kinds of work or maybe even um, letting some of us go. So that's been a real source of um, thoughts of anxiety and insecurity coming up around that. I realize probably for most people, this is still a lot more stable than most everyone else. But for me, that's, that's been um, one area of my life where, where this just really sometimes overwhelming anxiety comes up. Um, another part of my life where 
the suffering arises is just the aging of my body. You know, I'm now solidly middle aged. I can't claim that I'm just on the edge of it anymore. Um, I wear both contact lenses and glasses. And I have different glasses for reading, different glasses for computers, different glasses for driving. So, you know, that's an area of, of tending to the body that's taken more time and resources than it has in the past. Um, more frequent de- visits to the dentist, you know, some indication that I may have some major dental work coming up as, as my uh, body ages. Um, a general tend- tendency towards more sleepiness in the afternoon. You know, it gets to be about three in the afternoon, and you know, there's a lot of times when it seems just about right to put my feet up and take a little nap. So um, sometimes that's fine, and other times I really try to fight it. You know, like how do how can I how can this be happening to me? How am I going to deal with this? Um, and then, most recently, I had an interesting pseudo-retreat on desire. I just got back from spending a month at a brand-new luxury resort hotel on the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa. And I was there for work. <laughs> so I wasn't even paying for it. NASA was. I guess you guys were as taxpayers. Um, we were studying... Uh, how hurricanes form, and that's the part of the world where the hurricanes that the storms that eventually become hurricanes and hit North and Central America originate. And so I was there. And I was living in an environment that had been expressly constructed to maximize pleasant experience and to minimize unpleasant experience. So there were Three meals a day that were all-you-could-eat buffets. And although I don't drink, there was all-you-could-drink. All of the alcohol was included in the, in the cost of the, the place. Um, beautiful sand beaches, swimming pool, uh, live entertainment each night. And it's amazing how much you can suffer from wanting, wanting pleasant experience. You know, just the um, walking in and thinking, oh, wow, this food looks great. You know, I mean, there's four kinds of ice cream and a stack of bowls and a scoop and you can have as much ice cream as you want for lunch and dinner. So how do you work with that? You know, noticing the mind always like, oh, boy, this would be great. Um, Or the aversion, you know, sometimes the weather would be just... You know, warm and balmy and a little breeze. And then other days it would just be really hot and still and oppressive. You know, I couldn't stand to be outside for more than a few minutes. So this was an environment really where it was easier to see. Oh, and my life was fairly simple. All I had to do was get up in the morning, go out to the airport, work, come home or come back to the hotel and um, eat. (laughs) And 
really start to see how my mind was comparing my experience with all of these people who were there to actually only relax. You know, like I was walking around with a computer bag over my shoulder and everybody else was in like bikinis and you know, swimsuits and walking around with these beautiful tans at you know, leisurely paces and I was rushing about. So, you know, thinking, are they having more pleasant experience than I am? <laughs> you know, that comparing mind was really operating. So, those are kind of three of the areas where in my life, currently, where I've really been able to see the suffering, you know, the, the unsatisfactoriness sometimes, the, the stress. And and that motivates me to go to this practice for refuge. So in preparing for this, I, I read a, um, some material by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and I wanted to read just a little bit about it because it, it helped me see what the practice can and cannot do. I think when I first came to this practice, I was thinking, you know, if I really learn to be a good meditator, life is just going to be a piece of cake. You know, it's kind of like everything is just going to go smoothly and... Uh, you know, I'll just become happier and happier and, and um, you know, some kind of uh, paradise will arise. So, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about um, kind of what we might be taking refuge from in this present life. And the first thing is what he calls objective aspect or objective adversity. He says, the most obvious danger confronting us is the sheer fragility of our physical body and its material supports. From the moment we are born, we are subject to disease, accident, and injury. Nature troubles us with disasters such as earthquakes and floods, societal existence with crime, exploitation, repression, and the threat of war. And he goes on and on. So there are those things that we're all going to experience because we're human beings. You know, we're all going to experience um, sickness, you know, some breakdown of the body. Um, if we're fortunate, we'll experience old age. And all of us will experience death, both our own and those that we love that are around us. We'll all experience pain. We'll all experience loss, um, blame, disrepute. There are certain things that are just part of the human experience. So he says, The mind of equanimity, poised beyond the play of worldly opposites, is the highest safety and security. But to gain this equanimity, we stand in need of guidance. The guidance guidance available cannot protect us from objective adversity. So that pain and that loss, sickness, old age, and death, um, it doesn't protect us from that. It can only safeguard us from the dangers of a negative response, 
from anxiety, sorrow, frustration, and despair. This is the only protection possible, and because it grants us this essential protection, such guidance can be considered a genuine refuge. So, so kind of the bad news is we're still going to have experience that we'd rather not have. But the good news is that all of the, the optional suffering, the things that we add to this experience by our reaction to it, those really are optional. We, we do have the possibility of taking refuge from those. Um, so traditionally, the, the, the place we take refuge is in the triple gem, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I wanted to talk tonight. So as I prepared for this, I thought, well, what, what is my understanding of those three things? I mean, I've read a lot about them. Um, I've heard a lot of talks about them. But what what is it that I could talk about tonight that would really be my experience of them? And when I contemplated the, the Buddha, that's I see that as the one who's awake or wakefulness. So when do I experience being awake? And my experience to that is really, I feel most awake when I have been able to um, cultivate a strong sense of mindfulness, strong sense of alertness, um, to be able to be really present for what's happening to me moment to moment. And so I can engage in this practice known as guarding the sense doors. So that when I walk into the dining hall and see all of this food, I can notice wanting arising in my mind. Oh yeah, appetite. You know, oh yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I see that. And I can just recognize it and not let it run the show. You know, not have, have to do what that impulse is suggesting. Um, or when I'm walking on the beach and all of the thoughts arise of, well, this is pretty good, you know, but if only um, the ocean were a little bit bluer, you know, or only if I had a little bit more time, or only if the woman of my dreams started walking down the beach towards me, you know, that would really make this, this that would really be it. So noticing when those things would start to arise and just recognizing them as, oh yeah, thinking, you know, or, or desire, that um, that wakefulness can really serve as a refuge, you know, a protection against getting caught in um, the states of mind that just, um, you know, that often insatiable desire, you know, desire that always wants more, you know, no matter what you have, you know, if only, 
If only maybe I had a little bit more ice cream, or if only, you know, uh, um, you know, only if my room was a little warmer or a little cooler. If only I had one more day off. Um, that for me has really served as a refuge. Is is when that mindfulness is strong to be able to just recognize my experience for what it is and kind of stay with it, not get lost in in all of the the stories and all the opinions and the the dreaming about um, my experience. Uh, one of the things that I I did on this resort retreat, really, was um, I'd go walking on the beach. And it was a wonderful, very um, direct sense contact experience. Just the feeling of the sand, just paying attention to what does the sand on my feet feel like? What does the the water feel like on my feet and my legs? Uh, The breeze on my face and my hands, um, the sun, you know, the heat of the sun. And just, just drop everything else, drop all of the stories, you know, or just not, not that I could stop them, but I, I could, by bringing attention to just the sense experience, the contact of the body with the, with the world, um, There was a real deep relaxation that came from that, that came from um, not paying attention to the to the uh, restlessness and worry. Let's see, the other practice that I've been been engaged in um, since the beginning of this year in terms of being awake is actually staying awake. I took up a practice in January of one night a week. I would just stay up all night doing walk, sitting and walking meditation from maybe 9 or 10 at night till 6 in the morning. And That's been an interesting process. I've, I've had to let it go for the last couple of months as I've as I've been away. But first of all, it, it brought quite a bit of spaciousness. That it's a practice where, in you know, three in the morning, there's nothing else to be done. You know, there's no stores that are open, no things that you need that you can get, nobody to call that would ever willingly answer the phone. Um, it's just the time when there, there's just plenty of time to notice exactly what it's like to be sitting. Nothing else has to happen. You don't have to look good to the other yogis. You know, you just um, you know, just by myself. 
And a lot of um, interesting insights can come up. There can be a real deep relaxation from realizing that nothing has to happen. You know, it's just a matter of just staying present for what, what, what one's experiences. And also paying attention to um, what it's like to be on the edge of sleep. You know, when the mind's not continually uh, stimulated and entertained by daily activity, um, noticing you know, what does the mind do then? You know, does it start making up stories? Does it fall asleep? And um, bringing a sense of investigation to that. There was one time that I was doing this in Houston after a long day and I found that if I closed my eyes, I immediately started to nod off. I mean, it just felt like, I mean, I'd kind of feel my head heading towards the ground. (laughs) So I'd have to keep my eyes open. And I brought, for some reason, a very strong sense of curiosity arose. Like, I wonder, like, how many more minutes I'm going to be able to sit here before I fall over? You know, and it was like, wow, this is... This, this impulse to fall asleep is really, really strong. And I just played with that. I mean, it's just like by really noticing, well, I wonder if I'm going to be able to go like another 30 seconds. Or I wonder, I wonder if I will just wake up laying on the floor. <laughs> and that sense of curiosity got so strong that I made it through the entire sit. <laughs> and then I did walking meditation, which I found uh, really uh, energizing. And then I'd also eat Scharfenberger chocolate, which is like 85% cocoa. So that, that was a, a, an additional boost. Um, so being awake, staying awake, you know, that's, that's a refuge that we have of you know, really being present for our experience. Um, The second, the second um, refuge is the Dharma, which is traditionally is what is it that the Buddha taught? His teaching of the path to the end of suffering. And sometimes when I think of the Dharma, I find it overwhelming. You know, it's just like, geez, the Dharma. Well. You know, it's the list of the four this and the five this and, you know, the, the, the seven factors of enlightenment and, you know, the Eightfold Path. And I thought, how can I, how can I even get my arms around the Dharma? It just seems so, so uh, large. And how can I take refuge in that? So my approach to that is just starting with the Four Noble Truths. And seeing things in terms of the existence of suffering, 
there being a cause for suffering, there being an end of suffering, and there being a path leading to the end of suffering. So, what does that mean for me? Well, for me that means when I notice that I'm lost in desire or lost in aversion, rather than trying to come up with some very sophisticated and complex strategy for improving my life, I can just say, oh, where's the suffering here? And where's the clinging that's the source of that suffering? So what is it that I'm clinging to? You know, what can I, can I just see that directly? You know, can I, can I bring more mindfulness to my experience at that moment and see what is it that I'm clinging to? You know, what is, what is that sense of hunger that wants more food or that wants more entertainment or wants life to be easier for difficulty to go away? And can I just acknowledge that that's that that's there, you know, just just a simple honesty of, oh, yeah. Right now, I'm caught in strong desire for chocolate croissants. And then just see what that's like. And quite often, just recognizing that leads to the third noble truth of just the end of suffering, that that I, I, I find that I can, that many times I can just ride that out. You know, I can just say, well, yeah, it would be nice to have one more chocolate croissant, you know, but probably in an hour from now I'll be nodding off from all that sugar, so maybe I'll just skip it. Um, I think the other part of what the Buddha taught, or, or my perception of, of the path, is the part about what is my deepest intention? You know, what is it that I really want? You know, do I really want more food? Do I really want um, more entertainment? You know, what's, what is it that, what would lead to unconditional happiness? You know, after having seen how much, um, how conditional happiness is wonderful, but there's no way to hang on to it. So where does unconditional happiness lie? So quite often for me, I can, I can just take refuge in knowing my desire for unconditional happiness. Even though I don't know how to get there, um, 
even though I've, I've gotten whiffs of it at times in practice, and I've heard a lot of talks about it, I think there's some way in which just recognizing that as a deeply held intention has served as a refuge from pursuing things which I know don't really lead to the kind of happiness that I would like to experience. Let's see. And then the third um, refuge is taking refuge in Sangha. And that I'll talk about really kind of on a uh, personal level. There's several groups or categories of people that I consider Sangha. The first are a group of monastics, people who have dedicated their lives both to ending suffering, I guess, for themselves, but also ending suffering in the world through this practice, whose dedication to the practice has led them to a life of letting go of everything else. Uh, first among those is um, Ajahn Tanisaro, or Tan Jeff, <coughs> whose writings... Um, I find just very insightful and dense. I mean, almost like black forest cake. You know, so rich, just like one little spoonful, you know, like you eat one little forkful, and it's like, wow, that's, that's enough for now. So we have a number of his books uh, that are available for free out there. And... You know, one, I think the first book I read of his was, you know, like maybe a quarter of an inch thick, and it took me about two months. I would read about one or two pages a night. Um, and so he's been an inspiration. His writing and his teachings been uh, inspiring to me, and it's also been a very, really wonderful guide because of its clarity. And he's also offered me his friendship, you know, been able to take him out sailing and things like that. And so I can see he's told me about his life and I can see that he came from a family and an experience that was not very different from mine. You know, that he's he's not unlike me and that what he's attained is possible for me. In fact, he's a few years younger than I am. Um, another monastic is Ajahn Amaro, who's the abbot of the Abayagiri Monastery up in Northern California. And for me, he's also a very clear and um, respected teacher for me that has an incredible sense of humor. 
um, sometimes when I've done this practice, it's really gotten serious. You know, I mean, it's really like, boy, and I'm studying the Dharma, and I'm going to like sit through this sitting, and I'm going to, you know, I'm really going to try to read these passages over and over again and really understand what they mean. Um, you know, to the point where you get a headache or you just can't, you know, you kind of become your own largest impediment to freedom. So Ajahn Amaro just has demonstrated to me kind of through his sense of humor, just the lightness and the joy that can come from having a well-disciplined and um, well-guarded heart and mind. A heart and mind that's been um, strengthened and purified through practice. Let's see. And then the, the third monastic I was going to mention is Ajahn Jumian, who comes from Thailand. And although I don't understand most of what he says, he just he just exudes a confidence. I mean, he just you know, it's like just being around him. You realize there's no question where this path leads. So one still has to walk the path themselves. You know, it's not like one of these people can come and say, yeah, you know, I like you, so, you know, you know kind of wave the wand over you and you're enlightened. That's, that's still a practice for each of us to undertake. But to have wise and uh, inspiring and loving teachers is a big help. This is, this is a difficult practice. Um, the second level are just the lay teachers that I've had. Primarily, um, Gill has been my root teacher since 1998. Uh, Shyla Catherine, who I think some of you know, uh, was my first teacher on uh, loving-kindness practice. Um, and then many, many others. And just one other I want to mention is Adrian Ross. She's a teacher from Canada who's um, direct, ex- I mean, my direct contact with her just taught me so much about what compassion is possible for each of us. I can just, sometimes when I need a little hit of compassion, I can just bring her her image up in my mind and just kind of recognize the the limitless compassion that's that's possible. And then there's another group of people, and this is not really prioritized. This is this are just different. classes um, are my fellow practitioners, other people who I feel are in the same general neighborhood with me on the path. It's, it's hard, you know, you can really get caught up in comparing mind of yourself with other people, and that's probably not so useful, but recognizing having other people that... Um, 
that I can talk to about what I'm struggling with right now um, has, has probably been one of my biggest sources of learning is by talking to others that are um, engaged in this practice. I have a uh, group we call Dharma Buddies that meets once a month where we do the, the three fundamental Buddhist activities, meditation, talking, and eating. <laughs> so we get together and we meditate for 45 minutes, then we have a potluck, and then we, then we discuss um, our, our successes and our struggles in practice. Um, of course, the entire Sangha at IMC has been very um, supportive for me over the years. And yeah, so those are, those are some of the people that have provided the, the guidance and support and friendship and also kind of reality checking or quality assurance that I find it's often easy to fall into having kind of an idealistic view of this practice. And with that idealism can often come a um, ignoring those experiences I'm, ha- I'm having that I'd really rather not mention or really not acknowledge. So having friends that can go, well, wait a minute, Jim, when you talk that way, you know, I really wonder, don't you ever succumb to sensual desire or, you know, things like that? So um, that sense of um, helping being grounded in the practice is aided by having um, spiritual friends. So I think that's as much as I have to say about refuge. And I'd really welcome any comments you might want to make or questions or um, experiences, experiences you'd like to share in this area. And let's see, there, I think there are microphones so that um, others can hear. I thought it was just so helpful everything that you shared with us and I think that maybe if things don't go right at NASA for you, you can become Tan James. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm interested in the staying up all night and practicing thing. Mm-hmm. 
I understand among some groups that's a, a regular practice. I find that really attractive. Right. Well, if you look at the schedule of events up at Abayagiri, um, the monks there have, they stay up all night for each of the four quarters of the moon. So on the full moon, on the fur, you know, the, the, the waxing half moon, the full moon, and the waning full moon, they do a practice of staying up all night. And there was um, somebody that used to practice here, Peter Medina, who's done that. And so he had suggested that I might try that. And it sounded interesting. But at the, the first time he wanted to do it was like on a Wednesday night. And I thought, yeah. oh, well, that just wasn't going to work for me. So I waited till the full moon was on a Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, it's been helpful. You know, so I, I haven't stuck with the, the moon. I've kind of stuck more with what's really kind of workable in my life. Um, one of the things that came up during that time... I mean, it's, it's amazing what things happen at three or four in the morning was I kept having these thoughts about, why are you doing this? You know, is this, I mean, are you kind of nuts? Um, is this really, is anything going to happen? You know, when, when's something going to happen here? And what I recognized was that I had developed a um, spiritual attorney. <laughs> That would argue the case, you know. So, I, so I'd have the spiritual, you know, actually two spiritual attorneys. One would, you know, the pro and the con, who would be arguing about, well, is this is this a, a valuable thing to do? And then at some point, just like a light went on, and I went, oh, skeptical doubt. That's what this is. This is skeptical doubt about the practice. Oh yeah, that's all it is. It's just some thoughts. And then after that, it just, you know, it didn't entirely disappear, but it got much weaker. Those voices, you know, that, that interest in the courtroom drama about whether or not this is good practice, or, you know, whether this practice leads somewhere or not, um, wasn't so interesting. You know, that I could just, I could, if I could just watch, okay, this is what skeptic skeptical doubt is, then um, I didn't have to buy into it. And it made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a number of other things like that that don't come to mind right now. But habitual patterns of my mind that were so pervasive that you don't even see them as thoughts. Mm-hmm. You see them as just like, oh, that's, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. But when the mind slows down and really doesn't have anything else to do but just pay attention, then some of the deeply held beliefs that I have that I was mistaking for reality mm-hmm. become obvious that, well, that's a belief. You know, and, you know, maybe I can find where it started, but maybe I didn't have to do that. You know, maybe I can just 
I don't have to believe it. I don't have to believe my beliefs about who I am and what the world is. I'm just curious because you do thinking work for however many years, how this practice has affected the way that you think about the problems that you're dealing with, I mean, scientific problems. Has the way that you think in that work changed at all from doing this practice? Hmm. Well, I think to I think I'm thinking less and enjoying it more. You know, there's some way in which when the when the mind when when I withdraw attention from the thinking that some deeper sources of wisdom can be accessed. So Answers might come from a place, um, a stiller and quieter and wiser place than if I just, you know, kind of keep running the same, you know, like thinking the same thoughts over and over and over again, thinking that somehow that's going to lead somewhere. That if I can just stop that, maybe um, more constricted pattern of thought that it opens up for greater possibility. Does that make sense? Help you? Yeah, let's see. Well, I'm pretty new at this as far as the meditation is concerned, but I'm extremely curious about your interest in staying up all night, um, generally because um, I do research in sleep medicine, and part of our research has to do with oh, getting people who have insomnia to be able to sleep by using things like mindfulness meditation. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and cognitive behavioral therapies. Yeah. So I'd like to learn more about what you're doing and how often you're doing it and some of the effects it's having on you over, the, over a period of time, certainly because of what our bodies are usually trained to do at that time of night, which is, of course, sleep. Mm-hmm. And we have this sort of entrainment, physiologically speaking, mm-hmm. that allow certain chemistry to turn on and off at those different times of day and night. And so the thought process is particularly at the time that you're talking about between, say, 2 and 4 a.m. are very vulnerable uh, in that but you sort of become unplugged. Anyway, I, I digress. I'm sorry. I would like to learn more about that, though. Ah. Very interesting. Well, one of the most direct ways you could learn about it is try it. Um, <laughs> but I have. Oh, okay. Not in that context. Right. So. Well, I, I can talk a little bit more about that because um, the practice doesn't end when my last sitting ends. It's really the next day 
there's a way in which I really do find myself feeling emotionally vulnerable. That some of the mechanisms that I have for defending my ego and defending who I think I am and my belief systems are not so strong. You know, they're, they're kind of tired. But my mindfulness is pretty strong. And so I can start to see ways that the ego defends itself. I mean, that's kind of using psychological terms. Um, because it's not doing such a good job and I'm more aware of what's happening. So... Um, The whole next day is a very rich time. And oftentimes I find myself very alert and then every once in a while just being hit by, oh, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> so I have to be careful about driving and things like that. And usually, you know, maybe by like eight or nine the next night, I'm just ready to sleep. And I just go to sleep and maybe sleep for eight or nine hours. So I'm not recommending living a life of sleep deprivation. But as for me, the, the motivation, part, one of the motivations for doing this all night meditation was I kept thinking, well, you know, at some point in my life, I'll have enough money, I'll retire, and I'll start doing long retreat practice in earnest. And it kept putting the, the, the practice off to some time in the future when I have more time, when I have the resources and the time and everything else, then I'm really going to go into deep practice. And when I thought about that, I just felt um, discouraged. You know, it's like, God, am I really going to have to wait till I'm 65 and, you know, all this other stuff? And... When Peter suggested this, this practice of staying up all night once a week, or even once a month, or, you know, it doesn't have to be once a week, um, I realized this is a way that I could, this is one possible way that I could deepen my practice starting right now. It doesn't require, you know, being able to leave work for two weeks or two months or two years to, to, to go into deeper practice, that it was something that I could do and integrate with my life um, right now. So um, that was one of the, the, the big motivators for me was uh, a way to go um, to develop greater mindfulness. Thank you. Okay, well, we have about five minutes, so why don't we just sit for a few minutes and then we'll end. Thank you all for your attention and may you all find a reliable refuge. <laughs>